this morning, please turn with me in the scriptures to Hebrews, the ninth chapter, where I'd like to read for you the first 14 verses. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. The book of Hebrews is so well constructed and so integrated in its uh, theological presentation that it's almost a shame to read any of it out of context. I'd love to begin at the very beginning and read to the end, but that would be all of my time for this morning. And so we'll look, we'll focus on chapter 9, the first 14 verses. Hear now God's word. The author says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the place of atonement. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctified them so much so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And thus far, the reading of God's word. Uh, theologians sometimes have gained for themselves a reputation for quibbling over rather trite and minor differences. Uh, theologians, perhaps it's an occupational hazard, have a tendency to want to split hairs and to engage in disputes, and often enough have found themselves playing with what others consider irrelevant questions. 
the leading historical example of that sort of thing that you hear thrown up from time to time is, well, shall we get around to discussing how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I mean, who cares how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Now, just as an aside, I'm always a little bit, you know, humored by people using that particular illustration because since my doctoral work was in philosophy and I'm interested in those sorts of things as well, I know very well that that question about angels in the head of a pin, it was but very clever language to talk about an extremely important metaphysical question. You probably all want to know what that is. Basically, it was the question of whether the principle of individuation is material or not. Individuation, principle of individuation, what separates things of a common order from one another? Is it the case that everything that falls under the genus of cow, that the only reason there's more than one cow or one thing of that form or of that universal idea in the world is the only reason because the matter changes from one to the other? Is it the case that what we have is the cookie cutter called cow, and if it weren't for the fact that we had a lot of dough here and there, we'd only have one cow? Now, when you ask that question, a clever way of putting it to you is, well, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? If the principle of individuation is not material, then an infinite number of angels can be on the head of a pin because material, or if you will, physical extension means nothing to individuation. But if you believe that matter is crucial, which was an Aristotelian position for individuation, then you would say, well, only one angel at most could dance on the head of a pin. So it's not as though you had theologians, and this is what is, I think, uh, the impression people try to give. It's not as though you had theologians sitting around, some saying, well, I think 13. No, no, it must be 37. Oh, it's probably 150. No, it's, is it one or is it an infinite number? How many can dance on the head of a pin? Well, that's the illustration that's thrown out. It's not a good illustration. I think it rather shows one that people pick things up hearing them from others and like to banter them about not knowing what they talk about. That's a sad proclivity we have, but sad to say, though that's a bad illustration, theologians have plenty of good illustrations of the bad tendency to engage in hair-splitting trivial disputes. It can happen. It often has happened, and whether it has happened as much as people say, the fact is that is a common perception in people's minds. This morning we are going to take up a theological question that separates one group of Christians from another. It's a theological distinctive which I have had people tell me repeatedly is one that is insignificant. It's one of these trivial pursuits that theologians should not be engaging in. And that is the question, for whom did Christ die, and what is the nature of his death? For whom did Christ die? Well, let me tell you, let me present the case for the triviality of that question. There are some who say Christ died for his people, for the sheep, for the church, for the elect. There are others who say, no, Christ died for the world, for all men for Jew and Gentile alike, for each and every person who has ever lived. Now the reason why it appears trivial as to how you answer the question, for whom did Christ die, 
is because those who say he died only for the elect, for his people, for those who would come to believe in him, do not do anything different than those who believe he died for all men. Both groups believe in presenting the gospel. Both groups believe in calling upon men universally to repent and to believe. Both groups believe that God is in control of all things. At least that's what we're told. And consequently, it's really insignificant. It's just one of those questions that vain and curious minds will get involved in. For whom did Christ die? How many angels dance on the head of a pen? I mean, that's the kind of disdain with which that question is thrown back in our teeth sometimes. I don't hesitate to tell you that that's not my opinion this morning. And I'll feel I have not done a good job if it's your opinion when you leave. The question, for whom did Christ die, is tied up with the nature of the death of Christ. And that question, the nature of the death of Christ, is the all or nothing question about Christianity. If we don't understand properly what Christ did and what his work was all about, then in the first place, we don't understand Christianity, and far more importantly than that, although they can't be separated, distinct from that and far more important is the question, can I truly appreciate and be nourished by the benefits of his death if I don't understand what I'm talking about? What's so important about this? Isn't this a minor point in Christianity? Aren't we making a mountain out of a molehill? Why bother with debate over this theological point? It's a difference that nobody cares about. But it makes all the difference in the world. Because, as I've told you, it's the very heart of the gospel. What is at stake here? There's nothing less than the finished, accomplished work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus went to the cross of Calvary, do you remember what his last utterance was from the cross? What did Jesus say? He said, it is finished. What is finished? Well, I don't think it's... Um, well, it seems to me not at all unlikely that many people might naively understand that to mean my life is over. It is finished. It's done. means I'm finished. It's all over for me. I'm expiring here upon the cross, as it were. Jesus crying out, finally, I'm dying. No, that isn't at all the significance of Jesus saying, it is finished. Although what was being finished was certainly finished with the finishing of his life. It was the finishing of a work that he had been given to do. The end of his life upon the cross was in fact the terminus of the work he had promised the Father in the covenant of grace that he would accomplish when he came to this world. What did God the Father promise to Jesus when within the Trinitarian Council the arrangement was made to save a people for God's own namesake? God the Father promised to give Jesus a people and to justify them, and to sanctify them, and to make them his own, adopt them into his family, preserve them to the end, glorify them, and bring them into his eternal kingdom. And for this, 
Jesus the Son promised to accomplish the work of redemption, of buying them back from the slavery of sin and the lostness of their souls and the deadness of their hearts by coming to this world and living one, a perfect life of obedience to the Father, corresponding to the imperfect life that Adam himself demonstrated at his probation and thereafter. And secondly, Jesus would offer that perfect life as an atonement for sin, a pouring out of blood to cover the sin and to turn away the wrath of God and thereby reconcile him to the sinner. When Jesus was on the cross of Calvary, his crying out, it is finished, was a proclamation of victory at the very point that Satan had felt he had won the battle. Where the world might think Jesus was finally defeated, Jesus says, it is finished. I have done it. I've run the course. I have reached the goal. It's done. The accomplished work of Jesus Christ is a precious doctrine, not only to the system of Christian theology, but it's a precious doctrine to my heart. I hope to yours as well as you think about it. When Jesus accomplished that work, what he was doing was ransoming those who were in captivity. Jesus came, he said, to lay down his life a ransom for many. What is a ransom? It's a payment that is made. You know the language of ransom if you um, pay attention to kidnapping accounts in the news. It doesn't, uh, in our day and age, have the full significance and certainly is a much more sordid affair when it comes to kidnapping than what we're talking about. But there's a, there's a common element here. Someone is kidnapped and the kidnapper calls wealthy relative or friend or business and says that they want a ransom price. The liberation or freedom and the well-being of the person depends then upon the ransom price being paid not possibly paid, not potentially paid, not partially paid, but paid in full. Jesus, when he laid down his life, an atonement for sin, and ransomed our souls back from the captivity they had to sin, Satan, and the ways of death, paid the full price. And as the scripture tells us, he did this as a sacrificial substitute. Not simply paying a ransom price, but secondly, becoming a substitute, a sacrificial substitute. Now, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, we see this as not just in that chapter, but throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus and his person and work are seen against the background of the Old Testament Levitical ceremonial system with its priest and its altar and its tabernacle or temple and its ways of atonement, the sacrificial system, and all the rest. And what we see is that Jesus, according to chapter 9 of Hebrews, entered into the holy place, the most holy place. And now in this particular instance, maybe it would be helpful if what we said is he entered into the most, most holy place. And why is that? Well, let me explain myself. In the tabernacle and eventually in the temple, as it was constructed by human hands according to the instructions of God, there were three general regions. One was the outer court. 
as one left the outer court and entered into the tented section of the tabernacle and came to the altar of sacrifice. One was entering the holy place. Now, the holy place had a smaller room at its back or within it, if you will. And no one entered into that smaller cubicle except the high priest of the people. And only once a year. And that one man, one time a year, dare not enter without going through all of the various detailed instructions of the ceremony laid down by God, whereby blood was shed, first of all, for the sins of that individual. And then finally, he could take blood in for his own sins and the sins of the people. Now, that smallest cubicle was called the holiest place. In English parlance, it's been translated this way for many years, the holy of holies. Remember that the holy of holies, grammatically, is like the king of kings, meaning the greatest king or the Song of Songs is what the Song of Solomon is, the greatest song. The Holy of Holies is the holiest place, the one having the holiest characterization. But now what I said is Jesus, when he performed the work of a priest and went before God with blood for the sake of our sins, I'm saying went into the holiest, holiest place the most holy of the most holy place. And the reason I say that is because beyond what I just described for you is the human-built tabernacle and temple on earth. Hebrews says that corresponded symbolically to the very presence of God and the throne room of God in heaven. And so though we aren't to think in literal terms of the tabernacle on earth having a tabernacle in heaven. It nevertheless is theologically the correspondence to what the heavenly situation is all about. And Jesus, when he went to ransom our souls and to be a sacrificial substitute and to offer priestly intercession for us as his people, when, when Jesus did this, he went before the very presence of God in heaven. He went to the holiest place, not just, if you will, the symbolic holiest place on earth, but he went before the genuine holiest place of all before his very Father in heaven. And Christ there offered his life an atonement for sin. Now this atonement must be limited. I mean, if we have any kind of evangelical faith at all, an evangelical faith that calls men to repentance and to faith lest they suffer the eternal woe that will be imposed upon them as the Lord of the covenant curses them for all eternity because of their disbelief. If men are going to escape eternal damnation, they must repent and believe. Now, if that evangelical faith is to be preserved, the atonement must be limited. In some fashion, the atonement must be limited. For if you have a universal, unlimited atonement, then what you're saying is, no man will suffer the consequences of his sin. No man will have to go to hell. No man will come under the eternal damnation of God on the day of judgment, for all sins have been atoned. Evangelicals, in responding to that possibility of universal salvation, regardless of the state of heart and mind of the individual 
who is being saved. Evangelicals who have responded negatively to that have taken two approaches in limiting the atonement. The one approach is to say what Jesus did did not fully accomplish atonement. It laid a foundation for it. It began the process. It made it possible. It presented a potential work. He offers a gift but doesn't complete the transaction. That's one approach. That is what might be called the loaded gun approach to the atonement. You have the, uh, the instrument, the bullets are in the chamber, perhaps it is cocked, and now all it takes is something to activate it, something to pull the trigger. But Jesus doesn't pull the trigger. It doesn't go all the way, but everything is ready. He prepares it to that point. Or, if you will, Jesus puts down the price for our atonement, but he expects us to go to the bank and to draw it out. He looks to us to finish that work, to bring it about, and to actualize what he has made possible. Or another way of putting it is that he potentially saved people, but didn't actually do so. They must actualize salvation by taking advantage of what he potentially did. That's one way to limit the atonement, to say that the atonement only goes so far in its effect, so far in its character and what it accomplishes. Another way to limit it, and I think the biblical way to limit it, and the way which I hope you will limit it as you listen this morning to this instruction, is to say, no, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus did not just provide the potential for atonement. Jesus didn't simply go so far and leave a cocked gun, if you will, that needed to be activated. He actually washed our stains. He washed our sins away. He actually paid the price and procured our liberation from sin and death. However, Jesus did not do this for each and every individual who lives. He didn't do it universally for all mankind. He did it rather for his people, those for whom he came to earth to save, those whom the Father had chosen from all eternity to be his. Jesus did it for those who would come to believe in him those who would keep the covenant of grace. And so, one group of Christians limits the effectiveness of the atonement, the efficacy of the atonement. The other group limits the extent of the atonement. One says the atonement goes so far for all men, but doesn't go all the way. And the other says, no, the atonement goes all the way, but not for all men. Is this one of those in the spirit of those that don't understand, one of those angels dancing on the head of a pin question? No, it's not. Not at all. For you see, in the theology of the author of Hebrews, atonement cannot be merely potential. Atonement cannot be merely potential. I think you know this. When you think about it, a price being paid is not paid until it's paid. It should be obvious, right? Kind of like the game's not over until it's over. The price is not paid until the price is paid. You see, the price is not paid if someone says all preparations have been made for paying it. 
The price is not paid when someone says, I have sufficient funds to pay it. The price has not been paid until the full amount is in. And once the full amount is in, it is absolutely unjust, it is unfair, it's contrary to everything that has honesty, integrity, according to God's law, for the individual who has had the payment come to him to say, well, no, we need more. It needs to be done again. Yeah, you paid once, but I want payment all over again. Now, you might be inclined to think, isn't that, in fact, what was happening in the Old Testament? The high priest went in on the Day of Atonement into the holiest place, offering blood to atone for the people. And yet the high priest came back the next year and did it again. And he came back the next year after that and did it yet again. And then again, and again, and again, and again. In fact, so often that the Jews began in their dullness of mind and heart to just expect that's what religion is all about. These ceremonies, going through this ritual, doing it and doing it, it's our tradition. The idea that the temple should be done away with was blasphemy to them. When Jesus suggested that if they killed him, he'd rebuild the temple in three days, they were offended. This man speaks against the temple. Jesus said it would have to be cleared away because a new order had come where his body, his person, and his work were taking the place of all that that temple represented. The Jews just took it for granted that the priest does this and we go through it all the time. But the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 tells us that though that is the way things happened in the old order, when Jesus came, he once for all went in before God and that ended it. Look at verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 9. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. As long as that ritual was going on, as long as that regularity and repetition were the case, the way before God was still closed. Oh, granted, once a year one man would creep into that little cubicle and hope that his life wouldn't be taken for fear that he had done something wrong in the process and would very quickly take care of that atonement and leave and then again waiting an entire year and then one man once that year going in briefly. But the way before God had not been opened. When Jesus died on the cross and said, It is finished, what happened? to the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. It was torn in half from top to bottom. Not, it, it, it's not just that theologically the way to God was finally opened up, but God in the most physical and obvious way showed to His people there's nothing separating us anymore. No longer do you have to depend upon a priest who will only once a year that one man briefly come before me, but all of my people at all times now come before my very presence. It's one of the most beautiful teachings in the book of Hebrews, and you'll find it more than once there, that we have a greater confidence to draw near within the veil, the author of Hebrews says, because the way to God has been opened up. 
the Holy Spirit, according to verse 8, has shown by the regularity and repetition of that old covenant practice that the way into the most holy place was not yet disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. And that's an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. No, that isn't what God had in mind, and that wasn't religion, and that wasn't full atonement. Although the Hebrews were doing what God told them to do, don't misunderstand me, it wasn't disobedient to have that Levitical practice, that priestly practice, that day of atonement ritual, but the fact of the matter is that it didn't accomplish what needed to be accomplished. It was only a picture of what would be accomplished. It was only a provisional anticipation of what would be accomplished. It was never intended to be the real thing for all time. Verse 11 says, however, that when Christ came as high priest of the good things that already are here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. Oh, Jesus didn't enter into that earthly tabernacle as though he were a Levitical priest. He wasn't a Levitical priest. He was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so, no, he didn't enter into that one. He entered into the tabernacle that's not man-made. That is to say, not part of this creation. He didn't enter into the natural tabernacle. He entered into the supernatural one. He didn't enter into the tabernacle of this earth. He entered before the presence of God beyond this earth. He went before the very presence of God. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves either. But he entered the most holy place, what I've called the most, most holy place, once for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. You could do far worse this afternoon as you enjoy the Lord's Day than to go over just those words repeatedly and understand each one of them. But he entered the most holy place once for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption once for all not to be repeated not to be regularly gone through some kind of a pattern some kind of continuing ritual but he did it once there are some things in this world that are done uniquely we've just finished watching the Olympics over the last uh, couple weeks and it um, is a little bit surprising to find that Performances which were previously considered, you know, so unique have been repeated and bettered. That happens in so many walks of life. Things that are supposed to be so extraordinary, so one of a kind, turn out to be not one of a kind. But here's something that is genuinely and eternally one of its kind. Only once was this kind of transaction performed. Only once. And not just because there was only one person to do it, but because it only needed to be done once. And once it was done, it was done. When he entered into the most holy place with his own blood, he obtained eternal redemption. When Jesus went before the presence of his Father, he didn't simply make provision. He didn't simply potentially do something. He obtained something. Now, when you go into a store and you put down the money on the counter, you obtain your goods and walk out. 
That settles it. The transaction's done. The author of Hebrews says Jesus obtained eternal redemption, not just made it possible, not just did partially the work necessary. An atonement that is merely potential doesn't make sense. And by the way, an atonement that's merely potential wouldn't make Jesus a parallel to Adam at all, would he? Would it? Jesus actually saved us in the same way that Adam actually brought us down. The fall wasn't potential. It is not as though Adam did something which made it possible for all of us to be sinners. Moreover, Jesus didn't do something that made it possible for us to be saved. He saved us. Adam lost us. If you forgive my bad grammar, Jesus saved us. No potentiality about it. Those are actual transactions, actual historical events that had actual effects. Scripture declares the effects of Christ's work to be the giving of life, the purchasing of men, the intercession the intercessing, the going as the intercessor before his father and dying in the place of others. In verses 11 and 12, Christ's work is modeled as we've seen against the Old Testament system. We've already seen the inadequacy of that former system. And by contrast, the point of Hebrews 9.11 is that Christ has fully obtained redemption. What does that mean? What are the benefits of that particular theological distinctive this morning. How is it important, as I told you at the beginning, that every child of God, every member of the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, learn to sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Well, it's important because we don't want to think that Jesus only had a self-starter kit approach to salvation. Now, you can get those sorts of things in lots, lots of different areas, whether you're cooking or building things, you can get a self-starter kit. It's kind of like, you don't know enough to get it going, but if somebody kind of gets you on the right road and gives the instructions and does the initial work for you, well, then you can finish it out. Well, you know, if you have a self-starter kit, let's say you're building a boat at home and somebody has given you some of the things you need to begin and the finishing instructions... You don't owe everything to the person who gave you the self-starting kit because that person certainly did the most crucial part of the work, indispensable, no doubt about it, but not all of it. And I finished it off. And the way it looks and the way it runs, I deserve part of that credit too. Is it conceivable to you, Christian, this morning that you could take that attitude toward what Jesus did? Could you possibly say, thanks, Jesus, for getting me started on the right road? Thanks, Jesus, for laying the foundation there and enabling me by your instructions to complete the edifice? Is Jesus nothing more but the starter on the way to salvation? Not at all. Did Jesus only make a noble attempt to secure salvation for his people? Do we just love him because he tried to do his best to save all men? We know he's frustrated. I mean, what can you do with the free will of recalcitrant sinners, right? I mean, is that our attitude toward Jesus? Well, if it is, let me warn you right now that if your attitude toward Jesus is he's trying to save all men, but, oh, it's just so terrible they won't come to him and there's nothing you can do about it. Oh, poor Jesus, 
can't really get done what he wants to get done, then I ask you, how can you be sure that he's going to get done what he wants to get done in your life? If Jesus cannot be counted on to save those for whom he wishes to save, how can he be counted on to save you? Oh, watch out for pride. Watch out for the initial response that says, oh, but I'm cooperating. I'm going along with the program. Because what you're saying is, Jesus can't do it without my help. If I wanted to resist like others, I could, but of course I'm better than that. Now, you may not say outwardly and explicitly to your neighbors and friends, I'm better than those who are unbelievers, but you know that's the attitude of your heart when you think <clears throat> that the difference between you and a somebody who does not believe is that you were more suitable to salvation, more amenable to the call of the gospel, and more cooperative with Jesus' efforts. No, Jesus didn't give us a self-starter kit of salvation. He didn't simply make a noble attempt that's been frustrated. He didn't just sign over a blank check to dead men calling on them to get up from their graves and go into the bank and fill in their name and finally they'd be saved. They'd finally have the price. You see, that wouldn't do any good. It wouldn't do any good to ask dead men to do something in their own behalf. If Jesus didn't actually impart life to dead men, all of us would remain dead spiritually. And Jesus didn't just make a partial payment either. Not just a down payment on salvation. He made a full payment. My guess is that in many ways this morning, you all know what it is to live under the burden of partial payments. Now, we're in the process of buying a new house. It's not the first time for us, so I don't want you to think that uh, all of a sudden we're surprised by this. But it does, rem it does remind us very vividly of the fact that when you're buying a house, you live constantly under the burden of making payments. Now, if you don't like making payments, you, perhaps you say, well, yeah, maybe what you do is rent. Well, then all the more you know what it is to live under the burden of making payments. It's not mine yet or not mine at all. And the point is, payments have to be made. My involvement with this real estate is only partial. It's not fully paid for. Now, in the economic realm, we all know that. We all know what it is to make payments. Uh, I don't see anybody in our congregation that is so wealthy that has never once been in a situation to have to make payments, either to a doctor or to a realtor or whatever. And it's a burden. But you see, our burden of making payments is more than financial. We know what it is to be partial, to be less than whole, to be broken and recovering in a lot of areas, emotionally too, don't we? We know what it is to feel inadequate and like we haven't got enough to get through this particular problem or maybe this particular day. We know what it is to be less than whole in our personal relationships. And what do we do about that? About this burden of being not just finite but sinful and less than we want to be not being whole and not being clean and above all not being right with God. What do you do? What could you offer to God? What do you figure God would accept from you? What is the price for sin? Adam and Eve were taught that from the very beginning that the price for sin was death. Life must be forfeited. 
And you say, well, okay, I'll give up my physical life and then I'll go to heaven. That'll be great. God will accept my life. No, he won't. Because you see, your life is not sinless and pure. It's not a spotless, unblemished lamb, as it were. And the price for sin is not just physical death, it's eternal, spiritual death. And so when we say that the price of sin is death, what we're saying is that when your body dies, you're alienated from God for all eternity. So what price will God accept from you, sinner? What would it take for you to be able to overcome your past defects, to wipe the record clean, to give you a new start and a new heart? What would it take? I'll tell you what it would take. It would take the love of God who has a son that cares so deeply and so eternally for us that he would pay it all. You know, if Jesus came to this world and he said, Dr. Bonson, I'm going to pay every bit for your sin except the last drop of blood. You know, I'd go to hell for all eternity because, you see, I haven't got any spotless, pure blood to make up the difference. And I haven't got any good works to fill in the gap. And there's nothing that I could do unless Jesus had done it all. The author of Hebrews tells us in this reading this morning that if we understand that Jesus obtained eternal redemption, notice verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Prior to Jesus paying it all, my service was nothing. It was unacceptable. It was impossible. But now, if I see that Jesus has obtained my salvation, there's a real irony here. Nothing I can offer will save me. And so if God saves me, everything I have must be given to him. Not in payment, in gratitude. And that's why the hymn writer is so right when he says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Does it strike you at this point that this is some trivial, irrelevant point of theology? Or does it strike you as it does me that without what I've just told you, there isn't any good news? It's the heart of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we're really without words this morning as we pray because we recognize after what has been said and what we've learned from the scriptures that there's nothing adequate in us. And yet you deign to hear our prayers with the help of the Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son because as a loving and forgiving Heavenly Father, you're willing to listen to us as your adopted children. And so with the feebleness and genuinely a lack of adequacy, we nevertheless want to pour out our hearts and say thank you that you didn't do just part of the work of our salvation, that you didn't leave it to us to complete the transaction, but you paid the full price that you would even contemplate paying a price for us 
is more than we deserve. And we thank you for the eternal plan to save us. And that you should even come to this world to die for sinners is far more than we could ever imagine. But that you should have such grace as to pay the entire price and to buy us completely back and set us free with new life, a new record, and a new start. Lord, there's nothing else we can say. All we can do is to offer you all of our lives in return. Please take them and use them and continue daily to forgive us for we need it so badly. In Jesus' name, amen.